Greetings and salutations, and welcome to This Ends at Prom. A coming-of-age podcast highlighting cinema about or marketed towards teen girls. I'm one of your hosts, BJ Colangelo, and I'm joined by my wife. Harmony Colangelo, a trans woman who grew up watching none of these movies. Is today's movie a queen bee? Or are we killing the teen dream? Get in, loser. We're analyzing the movies people make fun of us for loving. Welcome back, prom party. Does anyone like a peanut? I was waiting for an Andre quote from you. I See, the thing is, I always can't remember exactly how that quote goes because I get it confused with the Shaun of the Dead quote of basically the exact same thing. Of, would anyone like a peanut? Yes. <laughs> Which is like almost the correct verbiage, but they're not identical. And so I always get like, I misquoted just a skosh. I would not be surprised if Edgar Wright or Simon Pegg included that intentionally. I mean, they're big dorks, so yeah. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Friends, we have another, yes, another anniversary to celebrate this month. I think we're doing three in a row or something like that. Something like that. There's a lot of anniversaries this year, but, you know, that's the best time to talk about them. Yeah, and I think some people who think about this movie might be a little confused about why we're talking about it, Mm -hmm. and I don't know why you would, because who would not take the opportunity to talk about The Princess Bride? Yeah, The Princess Bride is a perfect film, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, We'll obviously dive into all of that, but this is a movie that falls under, honestly, like the same umbrella as A Knight's Tale, where it may not necessarily be about a teen girl, but it is extremely popular with teen girls. Yeah, and honestly, I think that this is a really interesting film to discuss through the lens of gender, Mm -hmm. because you have Fred Savage just being like, no, it's not about fighting and violence, and I don't care because it's a kissing thing. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of like what we talk about in this show when we say like, You don't need to be a teen girl to enjoy these movies, Mm -hmm. but that's who it's marketed towards. Mm -hmm. And so, like, I want to dive into that when we get into the context a little bit later. Absolutely. So, The Princess Bride is celebrating its 35th anniversary this year. I'm so sorry, Gen X. That must have made you just clench your whole body up a little bit. It's just one hit after another. (laughs) But yes, it is turning 35 this year. It is very exciting. Um, What's weird is that it feels like there was just recently a big celebration of The Princess Bride, but that was not actually for its anniversary. There was a reunion done in 2020 as a fundraiser for the presidential election. Mm -hmm. Um, It was for the Wisconsin Democrats, and they raised like $4.25 $4.25 million, something completely bananas. Yeah, I, so, heard, I heard Mandy Patinkin was fantastic. Look, we will dedicate some time to Mandy Patinkin later because I love this man. I know you do. <laughs> but yeah, so this is actually the, the anniversary year, um, but... The Princess Bride is one of those movies that feels like it never really goes away. It feels like we're constantly celebrating it because, again, it is a perfect film. Mm-hmm. And not to like spoil my verdict at the end of the episode, but like... 
The Princess Bride is not one of my favorite movies, but it's one of the uh, one of the best movies ever made. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> <laughs> so what was your introduction to The Princess Bride? Uh, high school. I remember that I saw it as a double feature at a friend's house, and it was a double feature with Moulin Rouge. Okay. And I don't remember if this was this person's house or if it was just the person who specifically said it, but it was introduced to me by someone who said, there's nothing gay about liking Moulin Rouge. My favorite movie has princess in the title. All right. <laughs> and uh, they ended up coming out as trans later. <laughs> oh, well, congratulations. Uh, so, and maybe there is something gay about it, but like it's not in a bad way. <laughs> I secretly kind of love the, there's nothing gay about it. It's, I like this movie. Yeah. Uh, that kind of stuff is really funny to me um, because it's just so silly. Well, it fits with like the wraparound narrative of the movie. That's true of it being a a wonderful story read by Peter Falk to Fred Savage, who is a piece of shit. Let me just get that out of the way because I don't want to like spend a lot of time on it. Um, but yeah, you can Google the accusations of Fred Savage on the set of the Wonder Years reboot. Um, he can kick rocks into the sun for all I care, or he can go in the sun, whatever works. I mean, we don't have to spend much time with him and this could have been any kid. It just happens to be Fred Savage. Right. It happens to be him, but yeah, you're absolutely right. It could have been any, any number of children. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, we, I'm not going to focus too heavy on that, but my introduction to the princess bride was junior high, I believe. Um, this is another movie that my aunt bought me. This, this is the same aunt that got all of her favorite rock and roll high school and Heather. She was like, Oh, you're going to love this. And she, Uh She was right. I do love this. I thought it I thought it was great. And what's interesting is like I'm not really one for fantasy. Mm -hmm. As in like I respect fantasy, but I don't actively seek it out. The the few exceptions are the George R. R. Martin stuff. Um I do like Game of Thrones and I have really liked House of the Dragon so far. Mm -hmm. Um The Princess Bride is one that I seek out, a knight's tale, obviously. But anything outside of that is not super my bag like I've seen all the Lord of the Rings movies they just don't resonate with me the way that I know they do with so many other people Mm -hmm. it's just not really my thing but the Princess Bride just really hits me in this sweet spot where my love for it is pretty undeniable I think because uh, I, I approach fantasy as a genre similarly to how I approach period pieces Mm -hmm. in that I don't like it when they take themselves too seriously yeah, okay, um, that's, I, I think I'm on the same page as you with that. Yeah, which is also how I look at most Westerns, uh, which are in the, themselves period pieces, but mm-hmm. so many of these like genres that are defined by their setting mm-hmm. are so serious that I can't enjoy them. Mm-hmm. Like, it's almost not supposed to be enjoyed, it's supposed to be like, you appreciate it. You're supposed to marvel at it. Yeah, like that's what it feels like. Um, I have never seen any of the Lord of the Rings movies. I actually don't much care for like Tolkien style high fantasy. Mm-hmm. I like more, um, I don't know, like Frank Frazetti, mm-hmm. the, the guy who did like the Molly Hatchet mm-hmm. co- covers, whatever like vision of that high fantasy is a little bit more what I'm interested in because it feels self-indulgent in an extremely cool way mm-hmm. as opposed to just like, I, I don't... I, I just, Lord of the Rings just doesn't hit the same for me. Okay. I mean, and that's fair. And I'm not going to force you to oh, get I'm into that. I'm not arguing with you. I'm <laughs> arguing with everyone who's sitting there with their hands on their heads going, how have you never seen Lord of the Rings? 
I feel like if people have listened to more than three episodes of this podcast, they should know by now that that is not your jammy jam. No, it's not. Well, they're so fucking long, man. I know. Like, we have some <laughs> friends back in Cleveland who I think it's a tradition that every New Year's Day, they just put on, the, like, the extended Lord of the Rings movies. Mm-hmm. And just, like, people come and go from their house as they please while hungover. And... I don't know, man. That's like, what, 16 hours or something like that? I just don't have it in me. I can't commit that much to a series. (laughs) So for those who have somehow missed The Princess Bride, here is the Fandango synopsis. A fairy tale adventure about a beautiful young woman and her one true love. He must find her after a long separation and save her. They must battle the evils of the mythical kingdom of Florin to be reunited with each other. Based on the William Goldman novel, The Princess Bride, which earned its own loyal audience. That does not paint this as a comedy. No, it does not paint it as fun either. No, it paints it as like, I don't know, an adventure, just sort of some sort of sword and sorcery type thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know. I just, I don't like, I don't think that's a good synopsis. I don't think so either. And I think it does a great disservice to just how fun this movie is. Oh, if there's anything that The Princess Bride is, it is fun. (laughs) More than a romance, more than an adventure, it is fun. (laughs) Yes, agreed completely. So fantasy films are always really interesting because they are specific to their own genre. Mm -hmm. So they kind of buck a lot of the trends that were going on around this time. But this era, this is right in the wheelhouse. Fantasy was king at this time. No, absolutely, but... It's really interesting to look at that in hindsight because I think of 80s fantasy as its own unique genre of fantasy. Like, 80s fantasy is pretty untouchable and pretty easily identifiable. Agreed completely. But if you look at the fantasy films from this decade, and, like, fantasy is a kind of loose genre, like The Little Mermaid's technically a fantasy movie from the 80s. Right. But I would never put that in the same category as, like, Conan the Barbarian. No. So if you look at a lot of the large-scale fantasy films of this decade, um, very few of them actually were successful. Mm -hmm. We talked about fantasy in this decade when we did our last Unicorn episode and why it was so popular. The easy answer is they wanted to be Star Wars, but they didn't want to be Star Wars. Right, and D&D was super popular at this time. Mm-hmm. That was a major push. There was a huge push in fantasy literature at this time period, mm-hmm. and that inspired a lot of people to make fantasy films. Like, that's the the cut-and-dry, easy version. Yeah, like, there's a made-for-TV D&D ripoff. I think it's called, like, Mazes and Magic or something like that with Tom Hanks that I've been meaning to watch just because D&D was so popular. Mm-hmm. But If you want to look at, like, the box office success for a lot of these films that are considered classics of the genre, like, three of them made money. Mm Mm-hmm. The NeverEnding Story, Willow, and Conan the Barbarian made money. Everything else either did not make a sizable return, or it actually operated as a loss and became a cult classic after the fact. And if you want to be really simplistic, you can break these down kind of into two different camps of fantasy, Mm -hmm. which is the boy fantasy, which is very bloody and violent and muscly, and the girl fantasy, which isn't. Mm -hmm. So, like, on the girl side of things, you have stuff like Legend, Mm -hmm. The Dark Crystal, Secret of Nim, Last Unicorn, and Labyrinth, which, like, that also goes into, like, the family films Mm -hmm. or the kid film territory. Mm -hmm. And then for the boy stuff, the ultra-violent stuff, you get... Beastmaster, Krull, Red Sonia, Fire and Ice, and like Masters of the Universe, which isn't that violent, but 
has it's every, very masculine. It ticks every other box. <laughs> yeah. None of those movies were successful. And The Princess Bride is in this unique position where I think that boys aren't ashamed to say that they like it in the same way that they would be to say like, oh, yes, I like Secret of Nim above the age of 10. Right. Like there, there was definitely this feeling where it's like, I'm too old for cartoons. Mm-hmm. And there was this rejection of like a family film. But similarly to something like uh, Omnipresent, like Grease, this is an all ages film mm-hmm. that's aged remarkably better. <laughs> no, I agree. And The Princess Bride, you're right. It did not do super well at the box office. It did fine. Like it didn't lose money. No. But it didn't do gangbusters or I, anything. I think this film and most other ones doubled their budget, which is pretty much operating at like neutral when you account for marketing. Right. But this movie did extremely well on television and in home video rentals. Oh, it's because you don't have to censor anything about it. Correct. It's not super kitty friendly, something like The Last Unicorn is. Right. But it still can be enjoyed by kids. Yes. It's accessible for children, but there's plenty of humor for adults. It follows kind of like the Shrek rule, honestly. It's not as mean-spirited as Shrek, Well, most movies are not, but I'm saying (laughs) in terms of its humor, it's stuff that's accessible for children and enjoyable for children. But there's plenty of stuff for adults to to latch on to. Absolutely. Alrighty. So before we dive any deeper, it's time for everyone's favorite part of the show. Welcome to the morning announcements. As a reminder, you can support the show on Patreon. Patreon.com backslash this ends at prom. Over at our Patreon, we offer things like our schedule ahead of time. Wonderful playlists curated by Harmony, our Sadie Hawkins dance episodes focusing on teen boy movies, and we are currently going through our TV Homecoming series through Pen15. We offer a free bonus episode every month for our subscribers at only $1. If now is not the right time to support financially, we totally understand. All we ask is that if you love the show, you send us to a friend, you give us a five-star review wherever it is you get your podcasts, and you tag us on social media, hashtag ThisEndsAtProm or at ThisEndsAtProm. Alrighty. So, of course, we've got to open up by talking about our titular character, the Princess Bride herself, Princess Buttercup, Robin Wright. How do you feel about her? I think it's interesting that the credits specifically credit her as the Princess Bride and not Princess Buttercup. Uh-huh. But maybe it's because she also is Queen Buttercup at parts of the movie. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. But um, I think she has more autonomy than maybe any princess I would have seen up to this point in film. Honestly, the more that I'm thinking about it, I think you're right. I think this is probably the first like live-action princess I ever saw, with the exception of the Cinderella made-for-TV movie with Brandy. Mm-hmm which is really interesting to think about. And you're right. She does have a lot of autonomy. She's, you know, kind of mouthy. She does what she wants to do. She knows how she feels. She doesn't like Humperdinck because he's a big old wiener and a meanie. Oh, we're going to talk about, we're going to talk <laughs> about my husband later. Don't talk worry. about the dorkiest rendition of your husband. <laughs> I love him so much. Um, but no, I always loved Princess Buttercup because I have such a soft spot for high femme characters that can kick your ass. No, absolutely. And that is exactly who she is. I mean, she is beautiful and stunning and has these just gorgeous gowns because she is a princess. Mm -hmm. But she also can ride a horse. She can kick ass. She is unafraid to speak her mind. And there's something really endearing about that. And I 
really gravitated towards her when I was younger because I wanted to be like that. Yeah, I like it's weird that you bring up Shrek because the more you mention all that, I'm like, oh, no, I think Fiona took a lot more from The Princess Bride in terms of like her actual characterization than she ever did from Disney characters. I agree completely. Even if she's like a response to Disney characters. And we are not like in the Disney Renaissance where we start to see a large number of princesses. There's like two Mm -hmm. right now Mm -hmm. up to this point. And aside from that, like the princess movie is not a popular genre of movie yet. Right. I know who you are. Your cruelty reveals everything. You're the dread pirate Roberts. Admit it. With pride. What can I do for you? You can die slowly, cut into a thousand pieces. Hardly complimentary, Your Highness. Why lose your venom on me? You killed my love. It's possible. I kill a lot of people. Who was this love of yours? Another prince like this one? Ugly, rich, and scabby? No. A farm boy. Poor. Poor and perfect. With eyes like the sea after a storm. On the high seas, your ship attacked. The Dread Pirate Roberts never takes prisoners. I can't afford to make exceptions. I mean, once word leaks out that a pirate has gone soft, people begin to disobey you, and then it's nothing but work, work, work all the time. You mock my pain! Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. So seeing her, like, so early on, when there aren't as many tropes established, and her bucking what few there are as, like, the damsel in distress is very interesting, especially because, yes, she is the titular character. Yes, she is the teen girl that we are addressing in this. Mm -hmm. But the story doesn't really follow her, but she's also not like a prize to be won. Right. I think that's also really important because in a lot of these hero's journey sort of movies, which this is a hero's journey for Wesley, Mm -hmm. for sure, the princess is the prize to be won, and she isn't in this. She's an active participant in... I don't want to marry this prince guy. He kind of sucks. I'm in love with this other guy, and I'm trying to get back to him. Like, this is about the two of them trying to get back to each other. And I think that that's really interesting, and we don't get to see that. Like, she, you know, she's an active participant in her own escape, and I love that. And also, as far as, like, this being a romance movie, we actually get to see them interact with each other rather than him being like i saved the day you're not unconscious anymore (laughs) now we just magically are in love right they actually are in love and their love is established long before the separation their love is established in like the opening scene that makes the grandson go like it's a kissing movie and then has like the most eight-year-old boy response when like they talk about, like, violence or whatever. He's like, yeah, this is what I'm talking about. I'm glad he's dead. <laughs> right. Oh, he got killed by pirates? Sick. Love yeah, that. Basically. She's about to get eaten by screaming eels? Fuck yeah, Grandpa. Right? Like, that is, like, the kind of fantasy that boys would be interested in during this period of the <laughs> 80s. It's, like, the much more violent shit. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of boys, let's talk about the lead boy. And honestly... Because Princess Buttercup and Wesley, they are our straight men of this movie. Like, they are the characters that are kind of the most grounded in reality in this fantasy film. Because everyone else is kind of a cartoon character. So, Wesley. Carrie Elwes. How do you feel about him? Why is he so lovely? Why is he so lovely? Like, How dare he? I've, I've seen Carrie Elwes in other things. And, like, he's fine. 
But like, why is he so unbelievably charming and handsome in this movie only? Are you trying to tell me that you were not completely dazzled by him when he was chained to a dirty bathroom wall in the Saw movies? Uh, no, not particularly. <laughs> I don't think it's his most striking version, no. <laughs> yeah, Wesley is such like a wonderful heartthrob and Carrie what? Elwes, he knows what he's doing when he's like looking a little bit down the camera with his eyes looking up at the camera mm-hmm. so he looks extra adorable. He fucking knows. Is there like a version of like a soft hunk? Like a pouty, pretty hunk? Because he's very hunky, but like in a pretty boy kind of way. Right. And like, he's also very smart. So he's not a himbo. No, he's just great. He's just great. What do we call him? I don't know. Just <laughs> something, whatever, whatever. He, he's a Mary Zoo. Because <laughs> he's too perfect. He's too perfect. I don't know. He's, he's great. He has, I mean, both Buttercup and Wesley have fantastic zingers, despite being the straight men in this. Oh, yeah. Um, I love that he's so collected because as far as like a hero's journey is concerned, like normally he, there would be like a montage where he learns everything and it's set to some bump in 80s music because that's the decade we're in. Mm-hmm. But no, it's just like it happened off screen. Whatever. He took on the mantle of Dread Pirate Roberts. He became immune to poison. He learned how to fight. Yeah, all that shit happened. He, he, whatever. He, we're already there. Cut all that. Cut yep. out that slack. Princess Bride just says, we're going. Like, this movie <laughs> jumps in immediately. <laughs> Which I kind of love because that would be how a book is. Like, a book is not going to be like, and for the next 30 pages, here's a montage. Like, that's not going to happen. They're just like, and on his travels, he learned how to do this. And you're just like, oh, okay. Well, also, I think it's an interesting thing to do because it introduces his skills as they're needed, which makes it more mm. exciting. Yes, and it's also just, it's fact. Like, these are what he's developed, you just go with it. And yeah. there's such an exciting level of suspending your disbelief because, I mean, it's a fantasy film, you have to do that to begin with. Mm-hmm. But so many fantasy films or just films in general are like, well, we have to explain all of this and hold our audience's hand. We have to establish the world. Yeah. We and- need to address anything that would be goofy and silly. Um, Why didn't they fly on the big eagles to Mordor? It's about the journey, not the destination. You're not supposed to think about it. Like... I, I hate that people overthink things like that. No, just accept it. He's this is just this is the kind of movie it is. This is the kind of story. Why would you why would you try to muddy that? Right. Rob Reiner's just sitting behind that chair like, I don't go I don't care. We're just going. We're doing we're, what we're doing. We're making a fun film. It happens to be fantasy. Yes. Uh, I love it so much. Um, you know, and I think that that's a really good trait for him, but I also love how much he loves Princess Buttercup. Yeah. And it's not even in this like idealistic way of like, well, I'm the farm boy and she's the royal, therefore I love her. It's like, no, he just loves her because he thinks she's rad. Yeah. I think that she just is a cool lady and I don't know. They, I think the implication is that they grew up together, right? Mm-hmm. So it's almost like this Pirates of the Caribbean, like I've known you for so long and I've longed, I've longed for you from afar. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's what it is. But there's also just this really clever thing about how he speaks to her, where he doesn't mm-hmm. make moves, but he makes his intentions clear mm-hmm. with things like, as you wish. Yes. Like, he's there for her. Mm-hmm. And that's what that says. Not, I love you. This isn't about my feelings. As you wish is about what you want. Yes. I think that that is so, like, it's subtle, but it's so good and so smooth. So here's the million dollar question. Is Wesley a sub for Princess Buttercup? No. He's like a wife guy. Okay. 
Like it's that he just simps for her because he loves her that much. Okay, you know what? I do like that take. I was gonna try to be really obnoxious and funny, but you were very sweet and genuine with that, and I also think you're right. Thank you. Uh, as a wife guy, I respect the game, so I don't know. I guess this makes me Wesley in this equation. Um, I don't know if you're that capable in so many different areas. I don't know if I should take this as an insult or not. I think you are the smartest person in the universe, despite having brain damage. That's very sweet. I don't think you're <laughs> climbing the cliffs of madness. Oh, hell no. I am not climbing no cliffs. Okay. That's correct. This I'm is not what doing I mean. that shit. I think that you're really good. I am good. Wallace Shawn. I am Sicilian. You will carry me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. So let's let's dive into uh, our, our trio of just Our, our merry bunch of cartoon men. Yes. Yes. All right, so Wallace Shawn as Vitsini. Uh, Wallace Shawn as Wallace Shawn? Wallace Shawn being Wallace Shawn in tights. So so Wallace Shawn in this movie, um, I think he's really emblematic of a trend that exists amongst this whole cast, which is that this is a career-defining movie for literally everyone here, sans maybe Chris Sarandon and Billy Crystal. Mm-hmm. This is the best-known role. Oh, I would also argue Carol Kane because she is most well-known for... Uh, when a stranger calls, but it's less about her and more about the shot of her big ass eyes going, the call is coming from inside the house. True, but also she's only on screen in this movie for like a minute total. Very true. So Wallace Shawn has done some version of this character for the last 35 years <laughs> in almost every role he's been in. And I think that's emblematic of how iconic this is mm-hmm. because this is a far cry from My Dinner with Andre. Mm-hmm. Wallace Shawn can act his ass off, and yet he is defined by one word, and it's inconceivable. I mean, we were even cracking up as he's running his lines and doing all of his just wonderful isms throughout this whole movie of just how much it just is the same character he plays as the principal in a goofy movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he leaves that like horrifying voicemail of like, he's gonna be in the electric chair. And you're just <laughs> like, all right, bud, calm down. Yeah, well, I mean... For that in particular with his voice acting work, because Wallace Shawn is such a good voice for oh, voice acting. Oh, his voice is so good. And it's animated in a way that this is basically a cartoon. Like, it translates over almost one for one. Mm-hmm. And I think that specifically with him, it's like, oh, yeah, he has a character name. But similar to Andre the Giant, I'm not calling you by your name. You're no. Andre the Giant and you're Wallace Shawn. Mm-hmm. I can suspend my disbelief that you're paying a character but I will not learn that character's name because I see you as a human as this character, period. (laughs) Yeah, and I love that Wallace Shawn gets so much just juicy wordplay in this, especially when he has, you know, his his final moments when he gets poisoned Mm -hmm. and he's just running monologues and having the time of his life. Uh Because also, Wallace Shawn, most famous actor with a lisp, Probably. And like not like an like an affected like ah uh, this is my voice. Like not like an affected lisp. <laughs> not like an effeminate one. Right. Just like he just has a lisp. But yeah. it just it works so well for him. He's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um he's just he's so much fun and I love the fact that he's the villain of the group because he's so unassuming. <laughs> I, I it's cause he's the brains. Mm-hmm. Like during medieval times, I wanna think that every person who was in like a royal or noble position was a worm. (laughs) Like, look at Humperdinck. We'll get to him later. I'm just going to keep talking about how he is the biggest doofus. He is. I love him so much. And like, 
I don't think that you become a king or a noble or even just a person in charge mm-hmm. by being the biggest or the strongest. You're just smart and conniving. You're kind of a weasel. Yeah. So yeah. I think that that makes sense. Yes. He has the money and the brains to throw around to get staff, to get to get henchmen. Yes. He's a plotter more than anything. Yes. Once the horse reaches the castle, the fabric will make the prince suspect the Gildarians have abducted his love. When he finds their body dead on the Gilder frontier, his suspicions will be totally confirmed. You never say anything about killing anyone. I've hired you to help me start a war. It's a prestigious line of work with a long and glorious tradition. I just don't think it's right killing an innocent girl. Am I going mad? Or did the word think escape your lips? You were not hired for your brains, you hippopotamic landmass. So, yeah, he's wonderful. He's obviously endlessly quotable. He's so funny. Mm-hmm. Um, but after he dies, when he gets poisoned, one, the commitment to just falling out of frame as death, perfect. Like, what a great choice. A top 10 death. I don't know if it was up his choice. With, up there with Paul Rubens and Buffy the Vampire Slayer or a top 10 death. Yes. Like, I don't know if that was his choice or Rob Reiner's choice, but either way, it was the correct choice to make. It's oh, so good. It's magnificent. And honestly, I think that having him die fairly early in this movie, it's like not even halfway through, I think, is such a good move for the plot because mm-hmm. we learned that he's like a hired hand. Right. He seems like he's so much more in control during his time on screen, but he totally isn't. Yes. And I think that lack of control makes total sense because absolutely none of his plans go according to plan. Oh, yeah. They all just blow up in his face in multiple ways, including his own death. Yes. And like in his defense, he did not know how capable of a person Wesley is because I don't think anyone else could have done this. Nope. And what's really funny is that in other movies, I think I would see a character like Wesley and be like, this is just the kid who makes up rules as the game goes along so that they win. But I don't care when he does it. Yeah, it really is what it is, though. (laughs) Well, the joke's on you. I am also not left-handed. Right. Whoa, he had a force field the whole time that blocks my laser on the playground. (laughs) Like, he's totally that guy, but it's fine. It's fine. He can do what he wants. I don't care. (laughs) So... We talked about Wallachon and my dinner with Andre. Now let's talk about actual Andre. Let's talk about Andre the Giant. He's Fezzig. Again, I know his name is Fezzig. I'm not going to call him that. He's Andre. He's Andre the fucking giant. And if you want to talk about like, okay, so Wesley just gets by on pure charisma as far as like us as an audience suspending like our disbelief with his schoolyard shenanigans. Mm -hmm. Andre gets by on pure charisma Mm -hmm. because, and this is no disrespect to him. He is the worst actor in this movie, and I don't care. No one cares that he's bad. Like, it doesn't matter that he's bad, because he's wonderful. I think his thick French accent helps a lot, Mm -hmm. so it helps cover up the fact that Andre is not an actor. The fact that everything he says is like, ooh. Kind of. I also think that, like, I don't care, because he's just so happy to be there. Yeah, and so that's something I do want to briefly touch on, but I don't want to spend too much time on it. If y'all have HBO or HBO Max, do yourself a favor and watch the Andre the Giant documentary. It is fantastic. It is a little bit skewed in favor of WWE because Vince McMahon helped 
produce it because of course he did. They needed to deal with him so they could get archival footage. Yeah. So they don't talk about the fact that uh, Vince McMahon definitely exploited this man when he should not have, but that is a whole different discussion. He worked him like a mule. Yes. And it cut his life a lot more short than it should have been. But there is a really lovely section of it where they talk about him being in The Princess Bride. They got a lot of the actors to talk about it, and they Mm -hmm. all pretty much were like, we loved him. Uh, He drank like a fiend, which is something everybody already knew. Uh 85 Uh, beers or like 40 bottles of wine. mm -hmm. Like It was to mitigate back pain. Correct. And they all talk very highly of their experience working with him and that they loved him, and he was trying so hard even when he was... You know, drinking and showing up to set very, very drunk and or hungover. But they made it work. And Rob Reiner didn't care that he couldn't act because he's under the fucking giant look at him. Yeah. And he's it, he's a literal marvel. He really is. And he just fits so effortlessly in with this group of people. And the fact that he's not a good actor almost just adds to the charm of it all because it makes him feel so believable. Like, this is literally just a guy who was hired to get wrangled into all of this nonsense because of how gigantic he is. Yeah, he's just, he's a big goon who's actually a softy. Mm-hmm. And it also helps that they just give him really good dialogue. Mm-hmm. Like, Andre has some of the best dialogue in this consistently. Yeah. And he delivers it, like, in a way that just works. Agreed. And he just looks like he's having so much fun. Like when Robin Wright jumps from the tower into his arms, he just has the biggest smile on his face. He looks like he's having a great time. And like when you see him, when he's got all the horses, he's like, well, I found all the horses and I got one for all of us just in case we found her. It's like, hi, lady. Buddy, I love you. Yeah. <laughs> You're so great. I, I love Andre. Um, I think anybody who watches wrestling loves Andre. Anybody who's seen his like only film role loves Andre. He's mm-hmm. just, everyone loves him. He's the best. And this is kind of his last hurrah. Yeah. We um we recently did a podcast for the Incinerator Pod where we got to talk about the 25 best movies starring or prominently featuring wrestlers. I say 25. I think it was 20, and then they threw five in there that we didn't want because we did not <laughs> want Hulk Hogan there. He showed up uninvited, as Hulk Hogan has been known to do. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and we talked very strongly about, like, wrestlers who have their last prominent hurrah in a movie. Um, Macho Man Randy Savage in Spider-Man mm-hmm. was one. Um, Illegal Aliens with China is maybe not a glorious moment, but I actually have a lot of fondness for it because Mm -hmm. it's all downhill from there for her. Right. And this is truly Andre's last hurrah because this is the same year that WrestleMania 3 was. It was for a long time the biggest professional wrestling event in pay-per-view history. Eddie was a bad guy, and yet he's so lovable in this. Yeah. (laughs) And his health would only decline from there. Right. Yeah, this this is such a wonderful showcase of the goodness that was Andre the Giant that I think a lot of people forget about. Mm -hmm. And it allows him to live forever, you know? I mean, obviously he does because he's... He's an icon. He's the eighth wonder of the world. world. I mean, they have the... WWE has the Andre the Giant Battle Royal every year. Like, they honor him in other ways. I have like a 40-ounce beer mug with this man's body on it. Yeah, it's great. It's a great (laughs) mug to have, though. Two cans can fit in that. Yes. Um, but this is, I think, the Andre so many people knew and loved was this guy, this lovable guy who just wanted everyone else to to be happy. Oh, yeah, because the Andre in the ring, you didn't get to see his personality the way that you do here because he's like 
a, a, a ferocious, unstoppable man. Like right. he is a he is all powerful and he is a physique that you cannot topple. In this, it's like hey, he's just he's just a nice guy. Mm-hmm. You can beat him, but like that's not the point. Yeah, sure. Wesley just chokes him out, and the fight's really short. That's not the point. Right. Look at him. look at all the other cool stuff he gets to do. He's so lovely. <laughs> he is the brute squad. <laughs> the entire brute squad. Yes. <laughs> so we talked about Wallachon. We talked about Andre. You know them being actors that we just see them as people. Let's talk about Anika Montoya and Mandy Patinkin. Yes. So. Um, I'm 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 just gonna put this out there so that everybody knows how our watching process went, which is that I've never really looked up the cast of the Princess Bride before because I know who all these people are, and Anigo Matoya's there and he's being charming and he's being lovely, and I go, BJ, what's this guy's deal? What else did he do? And you go, um, Mandy fucking Batinkin, <laughs> and I go, <laughs> oh fuck, that is him, isn't it? Because Unlike everyone else in this movie, especially like this trio of kidnappers Mm -hmm. where I do not see them as characters. I see them as like a version of themselves. Mm -hmm. I do not see Mandy Patinkin. I see Anigo Matoya. Yeah. He is indiscernible from any other role I've ever seen this man in because this character is fully realized. Agreed completely. I love Mandy Patinkin. So first off, my gift to all of you listening, if you are on TikTok... You need to be following Mandy Batink Talk immediately <laughs> because it is him and his wife and his kids just being wholesome. He gives great advice. He's really funny. I'm obsessed with him. Like mm-hmm. he's so wonderful. Um, so there's that in mind. But Mandy Patinkin is one of those actors who came up during a time where we were not being as conscious as we should be culturally in terms of who was playing what roles. Mm-hmm. Manny Batangan is Jewish. He is not Spanish. Sorry to break that to you if you did not know. Um, that's not to say that there are not Spanish Jews. There are, absolutely. Um, and Manny Batangan has talked at great length about how every character he's ever played is Jewish because he is Jewish, and therefore there's like a natural Jewishness that like comes across through the characterization of how he plays all of them, which I think is really cool and i love that i think this whole movie has natural jewishness that just comes through all of it yo we will get there (laughs) i love this movie and it is so weird to me how people talk about how this is a perfect film and like leave out the fact that it is such a jewish movie Uh um but manny batingan is just he's so fantastic in this role and something that we learned relatively recently because of at manny batink talk is that part of why he took on this role was because Nigo Montoya's whole entire thing is is trying to avenge his father's death. Like, that's the whole point. Mm -hmm. Shortly before filming, a couple years prior, Mandy Patinkin had lost his father to pancreatic cancer. And somebody last year asked him, like, did you channel any of that when playing this role? Because obviously, like, you know, this this scene is very impactful to a lot of people who have lost their fathers. Mm -hmm. And Manny Batinkin, like, posted this really emotional and beautiful video where he's like, yeah, whenever I'm in that character and I'm talking and I'm like, you killed my father, prepare to die, I'm thinking about cancer, I'm thinking about getting to kill the thing that took my father. And I think that that motivation and that knowledge makes this character so much richer Mm -hmm. because you believe him. Every second that he's on screen, you're like, yeah, this is somebody who has gone through immense grief and pain, and all they want is to avenge their father. They love their father. They know this was an unjust thing, and they're going to take that motherfucker down. Mm-hmm. 
And oh my God, he's just so transcendent in this role. Absolutely. I can think of maybe a dozen or so characters that I think are as believable as Inigo Matoya, at least for me, because he just leaps off the screen. And it's one of those situations where he is, weirdly enough, we'll talk about Christopher Guest at some point, who is not mm-hmm. funny in this movie. Yeah, he's is so weird. The most unfunny person in the movie, and it's baffling. It's great casting for that reason, because you expect him to be funny, and then when he's not, you're like, oh. Yes, there's something innately sinister about the fact that he is the least humorous person here. Um, but when he's, like, bleeding... And just keeps repeating, like, prepare to die. Oh, my God. Like, it hits me. Like, I don't necessarily have, like, a physical response to movies that often. But, like, I well up. I believe he is saying it that with full conviction. My name is Diego Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Stop saying that! Oh. Hello! My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die! Now! Offer me money. Yes. Power to promise me that. All that I have and more. Please. Offer me everything I ask for. Anything you want. <laughs> I want my father back, you son of a bitch. No, I agree with you completely. And whenever they give him those close-ups, because he gets a lot of close-ups in this movie. Oh, he's very beautiful. Oh, he's gorgeous. (laughs) He has so much just phenomenal facial acting. Mm -hmm. And some of it's really subtle, but there's so much personality in just the way that, like, he curls his lip into, like, a smirk or he raises his eyebrow. Mm -hmm. And, like, you know he means business. And he, oh, he's so phenomenal. He's so good in this movie. Yeah. And also he gets to do, like, cool action stuff. Yeah, great sword fighting. There's wonderful swashbuckling in this movie. Yeah, and weren't you telling me that, like, he got to keep the sword? I don't know if he got to keep it or if he stole it. Either way, I don't care. (laughs) He has the sword, and that matters. (laughs) I think it has since been donated to, like, a museum or something, but I do know that he had it when they did the reunion in 2020, because everyone was like, holy shit, Manny Batikin has the sword, (laughs) Uh, which I think is great and just makes me very happy. Um, So, yeah, we have those three together, and they are just such a wonderful little trio they kind of bounce really well off of each other i mean wallachon gets to be very fun mandy patinkin is kind of bringing like a little bit more of like the esteemed acting to it even mm-hmm. though he's also having fun and then andre is doing his best he's but being it your, works he's being <laughs> the biggest drinking buddy in the world yes but it works really nicely Love him. The entire supporting cast, though, of this movie is absolutely phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I, you mentioned Christopher Guest earlier, who is not playing a funny role. Um, and that's very interesting to see. It's a nice color on him. That's new. Mm-hmm. Um, Carol Kane and Billy Crystal just bickering for five minutes. It doesn't matter that they're only on screen for five minutes. They made the most of that, like, ten, five, ten minutes they're there. Uh-huh. And, like, they're doing such a good job of, like, I wouldn't say overacting, but, like, projecting that mm-hmm. it comes through, like, 
thick prosthetics. Yes. Oh my God, they're so fantastic. And I did read an article that was written in 2021 by Valerie Estelle Frankel. It is called The Princess Bride Was a Jewish Fantasy Film. Uh, yeah. And it talks about... <laughs> how this movie is just flooding with Jewishness. Um, Rob Reiner, the director, is Jewish. William Goldman, who wrote the novel, is Jewish. Um, Cariolas and Robin Wright have Jewish heritage in their lineage, but they don't identify that way at this point. Like, it's just been, they're, like, really far removed from it, but it's there. Mm-hmm. Um, Wallace Shawn is Jewish. Mandy Patinkin is Jewish. Uh, Billy Crystal Carol Kane are both Jewish. So, like, a lot of the just prominent comedic moments in this movie are all at the helm of Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we talk about like Billy Crystal and Carol Kane, a lot of people talk about how their characters just sound like old Jewish grandparents arguing with each other. And that makes a lot of sense because Billy Crystal has said that one of his inspirations for the character was his own grandmother. Oh, I love that. Which I think is very <laughs> sweet and I think is also very funny. <laughs> like, because at that point he's just imitating the people that he loves. So you know, sometimes people view a movie like this or a characterization like that as like, oh, this is stereotypical or this is offensive. But I think because there are so many Jewish creatives at the heart of this, it never comes across as like mean-spirited or mockery. It feels like love the same way that something like Shiva Baby feels like love, mm-hmm. even when Polly Draper, who is not Jewish, or Rachel Sennott, who is not Jewish, are playing these characters. It's because there are so many other like Jewish people around them that it feels lovable. Yeah, and... I feel like the snappiness of how this movie is delivered, there's like this cultural rhythm to it that no one is out of sync on. Yeah, absolutely. And then something else that I think is also quite endearing is that both Peter Falk and Fred Savage, who are in the wraparound, they are also Jewish. So this is also like a story being passed down from one generation to the next. So it's almost like this wonderful Jewish story that's being told to a Jewish grandson about Jewish people. And something that um, Valerie brings up in this article is that characters like Prince Humperdinck um, are often kind of coded as Jewish. Like we see a lot of Jewish coded villains in fantasy films, especially, but it never reads that way for him because there's so much positive and joyful Jewish like representation going on around it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really, really smart and is also very correct because we talked about in The Last Unicorn how some of the characters are just like painfully offensive Jewish stereotypes. Schmendrick, Schmendrick holy shit. <laughs> um, and, and it feels off-putting because there's not like positive or joyfulness to offset it. And I think that's why Princess Bride gets it right because it doesn't feel like, hey, look, there's the negative stereotype. It's like, no, there's like a lot of stuff going on here at once and we're all fitting into this communal world together. And I think that that's brilliant. Yeah, and... What I think that this movie does that makes it transcend all of its contemporaries is that this is the decade of, like, the dark fantasy. Yes. Um, Last Unicorn's really fucking bleak. Legend is bleak. The Neverending Story is bleak. This is not. This is a very joyful, lovable film, mm-hmm. especially for its time. <laughs> no, I agree completely. I think there's so much happiness in this, even with the conflict and... We've got to talk about the conflict. Mm-hmm. We have to talk about my husband. Yeah, BJ, you want you want to talk about your husband? Because I'm not sure we might ever get the opportunity on the podcast. Okay. I need everyone to understand that what I'm about to say is with the utmost of seriousness. I love Christopher Sarandon. Mm-hmm. I love him 
more than I have ever loved any man, whether I know them in real life or not, on this planet. Mm -hmm. I love him. <laughs> you love him more than Manny Patinkin. I, I do. I do love him more than Manny Patinkin. I do not have an entire shrine in my office dedicated to Manny Patinkin, but I do to Chris Sarandon. Mm -hmm. So to make it so that I don't sound like a complete weirdo, Fright Night is my favorite movie. It just is. It always has been. Mm -hmm. And a major factor of that is Chris Sarandon, who plays Jerry Dandridge, the greatest vampire character ever put to screen. I cannot explain why I am so drawn to him, but I am obsessed with Chris Sarandon. I'm obsessed with his acting. I'm obsessed with his personality. I think that he is just a fantastic human being. And it is so well documented how much I love him that when he had a guest spot on one of the seasons of Orange is the New Black, I could always tell where my friends were in their binging because I would get a text message of like, did you see who appears in episode five? And it's like, yes, I do. It's my husband. Of course I know this. Thank you very much. <laughs> but I think people don't realize how much they love Chris Sarandon because he's one of those actors who is very famous. He's obviously like an Academy Award nominee. He's mm -hmm. wonderful. But he's not like a Hollywood guy. No. He's never been that. He just takes on really compelling roles. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have him in Fright Night as Jerry Dandridge, where he is the hottest man alive and so seductive <laughs> and so gay and wonderful. Speaking of people who get by on a lot of charisma. Oh, my God. And then you have him, you know, he's he's the voice of Jack Skellington. Everyone always forgets that. Mm -hmm. um, and he does not sing. That's Danny Elfman. No, that's Danny Elfman. Um, he I sings mean <laughs> in the Nightmare Before Christmas sequel video game. <laughs> it's very true. Um, I mean, he's he's in Dog Day Afternoon as a pre-op trans woman. That is absolutely something I've unpacked in therapy. <laughs> I'm, glad, uh, I'm glad I could somehow connect some dots for you there. <laughs> <laughs> Just one step closer to God. <laughs> Yeah, no, it was one of those things where, like, when you and I first, like, were really serious, I was like, all right, I need to unpack some things here. I don't know if there's a connection here. The The answer is that there's not a connection, but it is really funny mm -hmm. um, when you think about how much I love him and then his most, like, prestigious role is that. Mm -hmm. um, but then you have him in here, and he's such a wiener. Yeah. Arguably, this is his most well-known role outside of Nightmare Before Christmas, where mm -hmm. you don't see his face and mm -hmm. you don't hear him sing. Right. So I think this is arguably his I would most say well in the mainstream, for sure, this is his most well-known, which is so interesting because everything that I love about him is when he's playing these like effortlessly cool and charismatic characters. And then in this, he's such a punk bitch. Yeah. He's a <laughs> and doofus I love and tights. It. He's a doofus in tights. And I love it so much because it just feels like he's playing against type, but he's doing such a good job at it mm -hmm. because he can do no wrong. He's perfect. He's very good at being snooty. Um, I think that the, I I think the thing I love about him in like his juxtaposition with Christopher Guest is like he's he's a goof. He's he's far quad, basically. Like one hundred percent. I think Shrek borrowed a lot of its actual characterization, like obviously in response to Disney, but like Mm, a lot of these characters feel more like Princess Bride characters the more I think about it. No, I agree with you completely. And that was something that I didn't really think about until we started having this conversation. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, man, I wish I would have dedicated more time to like how Shrek basically wants to be the Princess Bride when it grows up. Because you're totally right. Because Prince Humperdinck and Lord Farquaad are one and the same. We they surely are... are not the first people to come to this realization. No, there's but no way. <laughs> all the same. We're doing it on air for everybody as our minds are slowly being blown. <laughs> you uh, can actively hear the light bulb lighting above our heads huh. oh. but i i think it's really interesting to see how he functions versus christopher guest because he is a lot more of like a pronounced character 
And while he is like equally sinister, there's like comical things about him where he's like polishing a knife while casually talking about his plot to murder Princess Buttercup versus Christopher Guest, who is like, has this like seedy evil that exists below the surface that Mm -hmm. is like what actual medieval times were like. But he doesn't feel like he belongs in this movie. And that makes him so much more jarring, especially in comparison to the person he's like, who is his lordship. Okay, so... Obviously, this movie came out before this dichotomy would become very public. Mm. Prince Humperdinck is George W. Bush, and Christopher Guest is Dick Cheney. Yeah. Like, that's what we're dealing with here. He's pulling those strings. Yeah, there's a bumbling fool who's actually in power, and then there's somebody who's genuinely and sincerely evil kind of running things behind the scenes. So I guess if we're going to continue this metaphor, Prince Humperdinck is responsible for the Black Plague. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Prince Humperdinck did 1347. <laughs> That's when the Black Plague started. I just Googled that for you to make that joke. I hope you all appreciated it. I, I appreciate your commitment to the craft. Thank you. If I'm going to commit to a bit, I'm going to commit full ass, damn you. You don't want to be just wrong. No, that'd you be terrible. Be wrong on the, like, on the people's internet. I can't be, I can't be coming onto Beyonce's internet and being wrong and spouting lies. <laughs> I can't do that to her. She yeah. deserves better than that. Oh, God. But like, Humperdinck is such a little weasel in that he crumbles immediately under the pressure of Wesley standing up. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Wesley calling him a warthog-faced buffoon, though, Mm -hmm. one of my favorite cinematic insults because he just delivers it with such confidence and he just takes it. Oh, like that whole <laughs> monologue has a lot of intensity that is very quiet. It's like when someone is saying something to you in public and they want you to know that they are very, very mad at you. Mm-hmm. So they enunciate very clearly. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> like it's so much scarier than if you actually shout. <laughs> yeah, no, you're totally right, though, because that's exactly what he's doing to him. And it is very clear that Prince Humperdinck is going to crumble at that fact because he is a mama's boy. And so he he can't handle it when someone's being stern with him oh yeah like we talked about this earlier with wally sean which is that the people who command the troops like the generals and the kings and whatnot they're not the strongest they just have people in the way in this case like 60 people outside the door that just are also gutless and run away at the sight of a flaming andre the giant yes i mean but i would also run away if i saw a flaming andre the giant he's gigantic (laughs) yeah it's in his name if i saw anything Seven foot four and on fire, I would run away. Regardless if it was a human or not. But if it's a human, I'm especially running. Don't go to Burning Man. I'm never going to Burning Man. (laughs) Or the Wicker Man. Never happening. All right. (laughs) So we've kind of gone through a lot of our characters. We didn't spend much time talking about like the albino character. I mean, he's he's just kind of there. Mm -hmm. Um, He plays very typical fantasy side character shtick. Um, We have the priest with like the Elmer Fudd lisp. So the impressive clergyman, most commonly known by people as the one who says Mowage. 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 Um, so that is Peter Cook. Uh, Peter Cook is one of the like kings of British satire in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Like that is where he comes from. He's in the original Bedazzled movie. He's in a ton of stuff. Um Without him, we do not have a lot of the British comedy that we know today. So, like, people who are like, I love Richard Iowati. Like, 
people who, you know, you like Jimmy Carr, anybody who's honestly on Big Fat Quiz. Like, yeah. if you love any of them, you have Peter Cook to thank mm-hmm. because he is the one who kind of really ushered in this form of comedy and changed things forever. And it is such an interesting choice to cast him in this because The Princess Bride for as earnest and sincere as it is, is also a satire of these movies. It is so self-aware of like kind of the ridiculousness of fantasy films. The set is clearly presented in a way that looks a little fake and that's definitely on purpose and it works for that reason. Oh yeah, like the the clifftop fencing duel scene. Right. Like that whole setting is so cheap to the point where it's like, oh, that bar looks conveniently just like a bar that they swing off of and they have a little crash pad. Okay, cool. Right. Like, I don't care. That's, it's fun. We're having a good time. It looks like theater. Exactly. It makes it so much more fun and like it's all done intentionally. Like tongue is firmly planted in cheek here. Mm-hmm. So to have him play this character almost feels like they're saying thank you for your work because a movie like Princess Bride would not exist without him. And I think that that's really cute. Honestly, the more I'm thinking about it, Princess Bride feels like a sincere version of like a Mel Brooks movie in that the form of satire. Oh, totally. Like in the way that Men in Tights is obviously like super goofy Mm -hmm. uh, and is specifically lampooning specific things. This is its own independent thing while also taking clear shots at what fairy tales are. Yes, absolutely. And it just works so well. And I think that this is a movie that people really gravitated towards because it's all of these elements playing together at the same time. It's not just a fantasy film. It's not just a romance. It's not just a swashbuckling action film. It's not just a satire. Mm -hmm. It is all of those things at once. And that's why it works. I feel like if you take out one of those elements, the movie falls apart. Mm -hmm. Like you need all of it. And they all are just effortlessly working together. But at the same time, I also have no idea if you could make a movie like this today. In what way? I don't know if modern audiences would buy into something like this. Mm -hmm. And I think that too many like studios or financiers or whatever would want people to pick a lane. And they would be like, oh, it's got to be one of them. You can't be all of it because I think they would be too scared that that's risky. I think so. Um, I think what they would probably end up doing is like, oh, well, it's too corny for boy audiences. It's yeah. too corny for like men or ad- adults. Like you right. need to go ahead and have it appeal more to like girls or it needs more action for boys. Or, or the humor has to become more vulgar because yes. then it suddenly becomes appealing to boys. It appeals to teens then. Yeah, which is really frustrating. And obviously we're speaking in generalities here. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of the thought process that a lot of these people have now because everything that we watch that's made by like a big studio or is part of the mainstream conversation is kind of made by an algorithm at this point it's focus grouped like it's focus grouped to hell and back yeah why won't my arms move you've been mostly dead all day we have miracle max make a pill to bring you back who are you are we enemies why am i on this wall where's buttercup let me explain there is too much. Let me sum up. Buttercup is Mary Humperdinck in a little less than half an hour. So all we have to do is get in, break up the wedding, steal the princess, make our escape. After I kill Count Rugen. That doesn't need much time for Dilly Danny. You just wiggle all your finger. That's wonderful. I've always been a quick eater. What are our liabilities? There is but one work in Castlegate. And it is guarded by 60 men. And our assets? Your brains. Fez's strength, I steal. 
that's it. Impossible. If I had a month to plan, maybe I could come up with something for this. You just shook your head. That doesn't make you happy? My brains. His steel and your strength against 60 men, and you think a little head jiggle is supposed to make me happy? Hmm? So I guess with all that said, BJ, this movie did not overly succeed when it was released into theaters. Mm -hmm. It found a new life in rentals and in television, mm -hmm. and kind of everyone fell in love with it. But let's talk about the teen girl appeal of it. Mm -hmm. Possibly reiterating things we've already said. Why do you think girls love this movie so much? Because I don't think I know anybody I grew up with of any age who does not love this movie. So I think right off the bat, the title is doing a lot of legwork. It is the Princess Bride and... Two things women want to be. Honestly, yeah. <laughs> like, that sounds really dismissive and very reductive, but that is very true. William Goldman has even said that the reason that it's called The Princess Bride is because his two daughters wanted him to write a story. One wanted a story about a princess, and the other wanted a story about a bride. And he uh. went, ha two birds, one stone. All right, then. And that's what he did. So you have this title where... It is telling you this is a movie for you mm -hmm. because whether or not we believe in the gender roles or the the way that we condition young girls, princess and bride are two things that we hear pretty much from birth. The only way you could make it appeal to girls more if it was Barbie's The Princess Bride. <laughs> right, 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 right. So I think that's something already where you're like, well, this movie is for me. Like, this is my movie. Mm -hmm. And then you get to meet Buttercup, who is such a wonderful character. And she's a woman that a lot of people want to be because as much as the world tells us we should aspire to be princesses or brides, Buttercup is like, yeah, you can do those things, but you can also be awesome and be who you are. I don't want to stay a princess. I want to be a queen. I want to be in charge, but not by marrying this guy. Exactly. And I think that that is a really empowering message that resonates with a lot of young girls. Because regardless of what society is telling us, like we are going to have that innate urge to want to be seen as more than that. Mm -hmm. to, be, to be more than what society tells us we're supposed to be. Even if we don't have the language for it when we're little. And I think that that's really powerful. I also think that this does have the A Knight's Tale appeal in that our lead of of Carrie Elwes is super dreamy. Mm -hmm. And that's always going to be an appealing thing because he's a hero that's also very, very attractive, but in a way that feels very disarming. He's, he's approachable, mm -hmm. but not in the way that's like scary bad boy, like hair metal approachable. Where it's right. like he's wearing makeup, so he's not that intimidating, but then he's also like got fucked up teeth and right. is like does tons of drugs. Right. No, you get you get Wesley and it's like, oh, his mustache is a little crooked. I like that. He is a Prince Charming, but with actual personality. Correct. Um, so I think that's a major appeal to it. And then because it's just a genuinely good movie, I think people were really into the movie because it was a good one. And it's one that people don't make fun of you for liking. Yeah. And this movie basically addresses that. At the start, because mm -hmm. you don't you want to be like Fred Savage, like ever. Right. But like also in this movie, we're just like, ugh, kissing, ugh, girl stuff. And it basically points out like, hey, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to tell you why you're being a little idiot. Be open-minded, goddammit. Mm -hmm. And I love that. And I love that this movie does kind of address the toxic masculinity that we 
promote to young boys. Because if he, like, Fred Savage's character is supposed to be, like, what, like, nine or ten? Like, he's Something. young. Single digits. Yeah, so he's really, really young, and he's already showing these, like, really annoying behaviors of, like, ugh, girl stuff, gross. Mm-hmm. And then Peter fought Grandpa's, like, shut the fuck up, kid. Like, this is a good book, and I love that. <laughs> Obviously, he doesn't swear. There's no swearing in this movie. No. Um, But I... I like that this movie is very aware going into it, the preconceived notions people are going to have. And it's mm-hmm. like, no, nah, check that at the door. And there's not a lot of movies that do that. No. Um, I, I think the way that this narrative is actually set up as him liter- literally reading a story when this kid is sick at home, I think that lends itself, one, to TV airings as like a comfort movie. I think that works really, really well. But also there's this kindness because Grandpa's so soothing, and he speaks the grandson's language, where he knows what he's saying, he knows how to address it. He honestly, like, baits and switches him a few times to test if he's invested in the story. Oh, yeah, it's great. Like, nope, that's it. That's it. Bad guy wins. He's dead. Sorry. And he's like, that can't be it. Mm-hmm. Um, I even think that, like, the ending is really, really beautiful, because... There's this thing where if you're a young boy, I I remember going through this phase, I know a lot of kids do, where you can't say like, oh, I love you, or it's like, oh, someone gave me a good night kiss, I'm gonna wipe that off. Ugh, gross, don't kiss me. Mm -hmm. Grandpa doesn't say like, I love you to his grandson when he leaves, he says, as you wish. Mm -hmm. And not only is that like a good callback, but also he's saying something without saying something because I don't think young boys... I don't know if old men are in a place where they can just say that and mean it. So they have to have a workaround. Mm-hmm. But it's in a really, really sweet way. No, I agree. I think that it's really touching and very sweet. It's very much the I love you, I know of Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what it feels what like. What you're saying, but what you're not saying. Right. And I know some people are like, oh, that's a cop out. Just say it. But I think that it's a really lovely way to play within kind of these gendered expectations that Mm -hmm. we have for both of these characters. Because you think about Grandpa, he is from a generation... This man probably fought in World War II. Right. We're talking about men who did not talk about their feelings. Uh So for him to even say, as you wish, and for him to even read the story in the first place... Like, is leaps and bounds better than what most men of his age group are are willing to do with their grandsons? The fact that he's not, like, hitting him on the back and being like, ah, oh, you got a cold, suck it up. Let's go outside and play ball and fix cars. We love like, you, Columbo. <laughs> God, I love him so much. But, like, that is that is a real testament to, like, who this grandpa is. This is a grandpa who's like, my grandson is sick. I'm going to read him a book that is going to make him feel better and is also going to make him feel better emotionally. And I love that. Mm, it's just That's just good. That's just good parenting. That's good grandparenting. That's good, like, male bonding. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love it, too. I think that it's very sweet, and I think all of these elements rolled together is why this movie is so perfect, why this movie has stood the test of time, and why this is one of the only examples of a movie that I feel like breaks out of the cult classic bracket to just full-on classic. Mm-hmm. Because, yes, it did not do well in theaters, but it did so overwhelmingly good in rentals and TV that this is part of the mainstream conversation. This is a movie beloved by generations. This is not a cult classic. It is a classic. This movie is discussed as, like, one of the best films of this decade. It's one of the best films of the last 50 fucking years. I agree. It's so good. <laughs> not a, I would not change anything about this as a movie, like, would I swap out Fred Savage in retrospect? Yeah, absolutely. But, like, that's not the movie's fault. Nothing right. about the movie needs to be changed because every single thing is the best version of it. It's just, it's so sweet. It's mm-hmm. it's 
it, the story is wonderful. The acting is wonderful. All of the choices that were made are the right ones in this. And it just makes me so happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so covering a movie like this is also really difficult. And we talked about this a little bit off air before we started recording in our sweltering 90-something degree apartment right now. Thank you, heat wave. It's really good to be back from Ohio where it was like 82 degrees the whole time we were there. Yeah. And now 100 plus this whole week. Yeah. We love you all so much that we are just going to die for our craft. Yep, we're we're <laughs> melting a little bit because we can't have the air on for sound. We tried. It sounds terrible. <laughs> it's like the ocean, but the waves never recede. <laughs> but in one of the conversations we had beforehand, we talked about how hard it is to talk about a movie like this because it's a movie that so many people have been processing and assessing for decades of their lives. So it is really difficult to cover all of that ground. It's it's impossible because, again, like our lived experiences are what we take to all of these movies. So the things that resonate with me may not resonate with another person or something may resonate with them that I never would have even thought about. So I hope that people who hear this conversation enjoy the perspectives that we brought to it and know that if we did not bring up like – a take that you have or something that you've interpreted, it's not for lack of its importance. It's not for ignoring it. It's just that it's impossible to to take, you know, 35 years of different people in, analyzing this movie and distill it to like an hour and 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. So Harmony, the time has come. The Princess Bride is asking you to the prom. Is it a yes, a no, a maybe, or are you buying a ticket so they can go on their own? I mean, I think it's already goes without saying that this is a yes. I this assumed. is one of the most like out the gate strongest yeses I could possibly give. Mm-hmm. Like if this was a horse race, it's a sure thing bet. Like <laughs> all the other horses just give up. Yeah. They're not going to win. They just go home. <laughs> all the horses show up and they go, oh, man. God damn it. <laughs> God damn it. God damn it. <laughs> like that's pretty much the uh, the approach to this. Um, yeah. N- no notes. I think that it's just a lovely film. Mm-hmm. I think we talked about it enough. Mm-hmm. I don't know anyone who doesn't love this film. I don't I'm sure either. That, I'm sure they exist because there are contrarians out there. But why must you be a sourpuss? <laughs> no, I agree completely. <laughs> Princess Bride is is a real OG. And uh, I love this movie so very much. And happy 35th birthday, you don't look an age over one because you're just as perfect as you were when you were born. Goddamn timeless. Timeless. Absolutely perfect. Friends, as always, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at This Ends at Prom. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at BJ Colangelo. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Velocitraptor underscore trap underscore tour. Huge thank you, as always, to the Sonderbombs for allowing us to use title as our theme song. Harmony, what cool band do you want people to check out inspired by The Princess Bride? It's not specifically inspired by The Princess Bride. Um, BJ, did you enjoy our, our vacation back to Cleveland? Surprisingly, I did, and I'm sure we'll talk more about it on a Patreon episode. That's because I bring the fun everywhere I go. <laughs> I, kn- I know my city like the back of my hand, so this, this shout-out is not specifically about the princess bride it's uh it's kind of getting in touch with my roots uh, mm-hmm. so we're shouting out someone who knows a whole lot about love because no one knows about love and longing quite like a country artist oh yeah <laughs> so the person i am shouting out for this week is dale hollow who i am just a huge fan of and spent a good amount of time on the plane ride listening to and have been consistently listening to for like the last month mm-hmm 
Um, if you like Orville Peck, I don't want to be like reductive by just comparing it to like one other person like that. But if you like Orville Peck, you'll like Dale Hollow. Uh, big difference between the two is that he's got like a really good sense of humor. Mm-hmm. He uh, copyrighted country music star, hoping other people would plan to use that. And apparently nobody uses the term country music so superstar anymore. So now he's got to do it. So now he is just the country music superstar. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's fantastic. He's released a number of EPs, all of which are great. I particularly like Yours Truly, which is a little more on like the rockin' vibe. But uh, some of my favorite songs is I'm a Lover But I'll Still Fight, Fools Rush In, Dancing On My Own, and Until Next Time. And if you heard Dancing on My Own and went, wait, like the Robin song? Yes, the Robin song. It is a wonderful country cover, and it's still gay because of pronouns. Also, like, unlike that other really well-known cover of Dancing on My Own, where it's, like, slow and it's a ballad and it misses the whole point of Dancing on My Own, a country cover actually still just as good because it understands what the song is about. Absolutely. All right, friends, that takes us out on The Princess Bride. We will see you next week, and as always... Save that last dance for us. Bye. Bye. familiar with that phrase i'll explain and i'll use small words so that you'll be sure to understand you warthog-faced buffoon that may be the first time in my life a man has dared insult me it won't be the last this episode was brought to you by pod people productions to find more episodes of this show and others please visit podpeople.me